I'm asking us this morning to put our tired mind aside and fill your mind with some energy. Uh, I want you to think this morning, to immerse yourself in this story. I want you to realize that we're looking at the breadth of the gospel this morning, and we are entering into the first Sunday of Lent, which is focusing on the temptation of Christ. And so that's where we're at this morning in Mark chapter 1. Malcolm Mugridge was filming a documentary in Israel. And he found himself chewing on Christ's temptations like a piece of tough meat. And he was waiting for that cast of morning light to begin filming when all of a sudden he noticed a whole expanse of stones scattered on the dirt, appearing as loaves of bread. Brown, well-baked loaves. Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. We all remember that. Why didn't he turn stones into bread in the God-forsaken Israel desert? Jesus was bringing his kingdom, right? His kingdom. Mark writes in chapter 1 that after the temptations, John the Baptist was jailed and Jesus went into Galilee preaching the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, Why not, why not turn the stones into bread, Jesus? After all, the Roman authorities distributed free bread to promote Caesar's kingdom. And Jesus could do the same to promote his. Jesus didn't even have to speak. Jesus could simply just give a nod. Boom. Bread. Christendom could have, have, could have competed with Caesar's free lunch program. <laughs> Instead, Jesus dangled his kingdom of four shaky gospels and a defeated man nailed on the cross. This is where he was going to hang his program. The devil was reading the cultural climate well, though, because messianic expectations were really high as Roman oppression was overwhelmingly strong. So what kind of Messiah did the people dream of, do you think? What should the Messiah look like? What should the Messiah be like? Well, Messiah should cure growling stomachs. The Messiah should stand tall on top of the temple with the Torah tucked tightly under his arm. Empower, Messiah should rule the nations. Don't give us a suffering Messiah, and surely don't give us a Sermon on the Mount Messiah. That kind of teaching is going to get us nowhere. Blessed are the poor? Well, the devil used Peter to cast the same temptations in front of Jesus after Jesus went through the temptations. The last line in Luke's Gospel of the temptations, and there's three accounts in Matthew 17 and Luke 4 and Mark 1. No, I'm sorry, temptations, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. And in Luke's account, at the end of the temptations, he said, the devil finished the tempting and then he left Jesus until an opportune time. He's coming back. 
just like Friday the 13th, Jason, he'll be back. <laughs> he was going to come at a later season. The devil attached a Peter Lure onto the fishing line, his fishing line. This is for all you fishermen out there, tiny. A Peter Lure, and he dangled that lure in front of Jesus. Had Peter on it. Bite the bait, Jesus, and Peter confessed, you see, before all the twelve and Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, and that Jesus started talking all this nonsense about suffering. Peter didn't want that kind of Messiah, so he grabbed Jesus by the elbow, and he led him under a tree nearby for privacy. And he chastised Jesus for speaking that suffering nonsense, and Jesus gets right in Peter's face. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, you devil. You are a stumbling block to me. Isn't it interesting that in 1 Peter, I mean in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus is the stumbling block. And here Jesus says, no, Peter, you're the stumbling block because you don't have the mind of God and the concerns of God. You have human concerns. Well, I want you to know Peter doesn't let his idea of his Messiah dissolve after this. The devil waits for another opportune time to use Peter, to wave temptation in front of Jesus. The soldiers arrive to arrest Jesus, and Peter swings his sword, cutting off the ear of Melchus. Isn't that a beautiful picture up there? The sword coming right on the ear. And Jesus stops the violence. Love your enemy, remember? those doggone beatitudes that we don't like. Pray for your enemy. And he heals Melchus's ear while saying to Peter, put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's speaking of the cup of suffering. He's speaking of this cup. The cup of blood. He's speaking of that cup. The Eucharistic cup of his blood. His death. This is the cup James and John will drink. But their request to sit at Jesus' left hand and right in his glory is not the Messiah's to grant, he says. I want you to know, we see the coronation of Jesus in all his glory. There's a person on his right and on his left when he comes in glory. A couple of thieves. And there's a crown on his head. It's of thorns and it's painted with his own ruby red blood declaring what kind of Messiah he's going to be for the world. And it's not the one Peter was longing for. Well, the baptism of Jesus is connected to the temptation of Jesus in Mark's biography very closely. Mark is known for his brevity. It's, his, it's vintage Mark. He's just brief. I want you to place yourself in an 8,000-person afraid of crowd gathered at our Jordan River, the canal by the Episcopalian Church. And Mark tells us the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem 
went out to John. John, that homeless-looking character, he's baptizing people. The line is long on a hot August day, and John preaches while he's drenching people with water. He's just the pointer, though, a laser pointer. John has narrowed his hope and his message to a person coming who is so significant, so significant, he's not even worth, worthy to just untie his sandals, let take them off. This person will not water baptize, but Spirit of God baptize. And all of Israel is going to be reduced and gathered up into one person. All of Israel into Jesus. That's what's going to happen. Now imagine standing, you standing with John, in the Jordan Canal waters of Ephrata. 8,000 people line the banks on both sides. And you're next to John in the water. And I know the canals are dangerous. I do. Our son swam in the canals one time when he knew he wasn't supposed to, and we found out. Carrie called the police department and asked what the fine would be. And he had to pay us that fine. He was not a happy camper. But imagine that you're in those waters to repent and get soaked by John when John sees Jesus in the middle of the crowd. He sees Jesus out on the bank in the middle of the crowd. He's distracted and he starts shouting, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus begins to move through the people and into the water. Now you are in the water with John and Jesus. And John takes his baptismal remote and he points it directly at you and he presses pause. And he turns to Jesus and he presses play. And you witness Jesus being baptized by John. And I want you to know, you don't witness John baptizing Jesus. You witness Jesus being baptized by John. Up until this point, right in verse 9, John in Mark's gospel is the active subject in all the language of the Greek. John appeared, John wore, John ate, he was not worthy, he baptized, but now all of a sudden we find him placed in a passive voice, soon he'll be in prison, he's stepping out of the way, Jesus came and was baptized by John because Jesus is the subject of everything going on. Jim Edwards wrote, scholar out of Whitworth, one couple sentences, one sentence, he says, this transfers John the baptizer, who has been the subject, to a mediatorial role, establishing Jesus prominently as the subject of what everything's about. All of Israel is reduced and gathered up into this one person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're told that Jesus came up out of the water and the heavens were torn open. I want you to know they weren't opened. They were torn open. It's a, it's a different word. You know, a door that is opened can easily be closed. It's got hinges, it's just closed. I mean, it was just this week, Carrie asked me, Mark, how come 
you open the refrigerator and you get things out and you turn around and put them on the counter, but you don't turn around and just close the doors of the refrigerator. What's up with you? And I said, well, I get out what I need. I turn around, put them on the counter, start getting my lunch together. And, you know, I just don't do it. I'll do it in a minute. But you know, she's right. How hard is it to close an open door? It's really, really easy. Mark doesn't tell us that the heavens were just opened like a door, thus easily closed. He tells us the heavens were torn open. They're not going to be stitched back together. Mark uses the word torn and ripped asunder here at the baptism and only one other place in his gospel. Mark 15. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain was torn in the temple from top to bottom. Top to bottom. It was not opened like the drapes in the narthex. You grab a couple things and just pull them open. You can pull them back. No. Not at all. It was torn from the top of heaven to the bottom of earth. And this is not primarily a sign that we have access to God. Oh, that's part of it. God has come to us in his son's suffering to show us the nature of his inner person of love, whether we choose or not. He's here. This is who he is. I truly believe that all of us gathered here, myself included, want a Messiah more often than not along the lines of Peter and not what's revealed in the gospel. Not the, we, don't, we want the first century Jewish vision not the suffering Messiah, who calls us to take up our cross and follow him, which is next week. So next, the Spirit descends on Jesus through the torn heavens like a dove. Onto is better translated into. The, the Spirit translated into Jesus. And there's a power being given to Jesus in his baptism for what he is called to do in his full humanity which is the first temptation of Satan. We'll see in a moment. Isaiah 61 sees the end breaking into history when the anointed one receives God's Spirit. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of God is on me, in Isaiah 61, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for those in prison to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And right after Jesus was tested, in the desert by Satan, Luke tells us he went into Galilee and then he went into Nazareth and it's really quick because it's the next section in his gospel and he goes into the synagogue and he picks up Isaiah and he stands in front of the people and you're the people. And what does he do? He stands up and he reads Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he goes on and on. And then all of a sudden he closes the book and he sits down and he says, today that's been fulfilled in your midst. Because the Spirit came on Jesus in a way we just don't even understand to empower him for the work in his humanity of going to the cross. 
there's a Jewish writing. It's called the Testament of Levi. Probably have never heard of it. It was written in 250 BC. It's written in that period of silence. There's been this prophetic silence. Malachi closes the Old Testament. The New Testament's 400 years away, and here we are with all this silence. God's not speaking. And we find words looking forward to that day in this testament, this Jewish book, of when God would break into the world. All three aspects of Jesus' baptism are listed in this Jewish text 300 years before Jesus gets baptized. Here it is. The heavens will be opened. And from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him with a fatherly voice as from Abraham to Isaac. And the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him and the spirit of understanding and sanctification shall rest upon him. For he shall give the majesty of the Lord to those who are his sons in truth forever. Did you see all of that there? The heavens will be opened, the spirit will rest on him and a fatherly voice will speak. It's not even in what we would call the canon. But this is what they were looking forward to. And here Jesus comes and it's all there. All Israel is being reduced to this one Jesus Christ. The fatherly voice speaks at his baptism. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then the very next line of our text is at once. Right after that, in Mark, at once, the Spirit sent Jesus out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, I want you to know the Spirit didn't send Jesus into the desert. It's too weak. It, he, didn't, he didn't suggest Jesus go into the desert. He didn't nudge Jesus into the desert. The Spirit compelled Jesus. The Spirit drove Jesus into the desert. The Spirit shoved or pushed Jesus into the desert. That's the force of the word. Into the God-forsaken desert. Because the desert's a place of cold at night and extremely hot during the day. Everything looks the same. It's not a place you choose to live. It's a lonely place. Pleasures are removed. You want something, you better pack it in because there's nothing out there. There's no mini-mart in the desert. There aren't distractions. You get to face yourself in the desert and you get to face God in the desert. And we've all been in desert experiences. We can have those wonderful baptismal moments where the Spirit of God and we hear the voice from heaven and we just feel all clean and refreshed because we've been cleansed with the water of God and then soon... We'll find ourselves in the desert saying, was that really a true experience? Does God really love me? Is God present in my life? You get to face yourself and God in the desert. John Calvin said, and it's very hard to discern which is faced first, yourself or God. You know, Lent's a time to curb our pleasures. It's a time of desert. It's a time to untie ourselves from possessions and attend to self and God. That's 
what giving things up for Lent are about. It's following this pattern of Jesus. During Lent, we allow the Spirit to drive us into the desert with Jesus. And we pay attention to God and ourselves. You see, the very idea of temptation takes us all the way back to the opening pages of our Bibles that Anita read for us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, he tells us sin entered the world through one man, his name was Adam, and death reigned from the time of Adam. But Jesus Christ is the one man who brought life, and that gift cannot be compared to Adam's sin, he says. Not even compared. Back and forth, Romans 5, Jesus compared to Adam. Adam and Jesus, Adam and Jesus, Jesus and Adam. Adam's and Jesus' temptation were dissimilar and similar. Adam lived in the beautiful garden in abundance. He didn't need a mini-mart. He was placed in a luscious orchard, the fruits always juicy and ripe, the garden vegetables crisp and delicious. Water flowed crystal clear and fresh. Jesus found himself in a dust bowl, barren, sagebrush. There is no fruit on sagebrush. Matthew and Luke tell us he ate nothing for 40 days. Mark tells us he was in the desert 40 days. The number 40 tells us Israel is reduced to one, Jesus Christ. The new Adam, the man, Messiah, Jesus. Israel was in the desert 40 years. Moses was on Mount Sinai 40 days. Elijah was on Mount Horeb 40 days. Jesus picks up the Adam of the garden in the temptation, the nation of Israel in the desert, the law of Moses from Mount Sinai, the prophets from Elijah from Mount Horeb. And he reduces them all and brings them all within his one person. And Adam, he even had human relationships. He had Eve. They're in perfect union. And Jesus is all alone. Dissimilarity. There was no one to hold Jesus' hand or for him to embrace. If Jesus wanted a conversation, he had to talk to himself. But what about the similarities? Satan comes to both Adam and Eve and to Jesus. He comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and he asks, did you, God, say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve shoots back the correct answer, right? Oh, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but there's one, one in the middle. If we eat from that one, we'll die. Now, do you ever wonder? She says, we'll die. That is an interesting line. You know why? She has never seen a death in her life of anything. She doesn't know what the word die means. I wonder if she, what does that mean? The first death Adam and Eve will see is after they've sinned and they've covered themselves and then God takes off how they've covered themselves and he covers them with the skin of animals. He sacrifices animals and I just can imagine them saying, oh, yuck, oh, my, so that's what death is. All that blood. Of course, the devil proposes that God didn't want them to be like himself. But wait a minute. 
creation's story tells us that we were made in God's image. And it even uses that word, we were made in his likeness. And he says, oh, God just doesn't want you to be like him. Well, we already are. We reflect him. We're his image. Satan challenges their trust, belief, faith, and obedience to the word of God given to them in relationship, and they take the bait. I want you to know Mark doesn't give us any of the three temptations recorded in Matthew and Luke, but I do, he, I do believe he alludes to them all, and we often just jump past it. Each time Jesus is tempted, he replied with a quote from his favorite book in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. It's his favorite. Like Adam and Eve, Jesus is tempted to not trust, believe, obediently place his faith in God's word. The devil comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you're fully human, who's fully human, he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And notice the first temptation is about our humanness, his humanness. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's hungry. That's a long time to go without food. So, if you are the Son of God, nod and turn all of these beautiful stones that look like bread, that you wish you could pick up and eat, turn them into bread. Did you notice? If you are the Son of God, that's what Satan throws at Jesus. In Mark's Gospel, what were the last words? that Jesus heard before he sent into the desert. The heavens were torn apart. The Spirit descended on Jesus. And Jesus hears the words, You are my beloved Son. You are the Son that I love. And Satan said, If you are the Son. Hmm. The enemy tempted, if you are the Son of God. Maybe you aren't, Jesus. He tempts Jesus not to believe that he is God's beloved. I want you to know that's one of our greatest temptations. Next, the enemy tempts Jesus, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down because if God loves you, he'll send his angels to lift you. That's right out of the Psalms. You won't stub your toe against a stone. What was the last voice Jesus heard in his human ears? The Father's voice from heaven. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, but come on, prove you're God's beloved, Jesus. Throw yourself down. He'll lift you up if you are. Will Jesus doubt the Father's love for him? Does he have to prove the Father's love to, for him? No, the Father just gives his love to him. He's just, that's who God is. And the devil shows Jesus the world's kingdom and he promises to give them to Jesus if he bows down and worships him. And it is right here that Jesus forcefully said, get away from me, Satan. Now, Psalm 2 is that famous messianic psalm. The, the early church, the church fathers, they, just, they, were, they saturated themselves with this. The nations of the earth are conspiring and plotting against the Lord and against his anointed one. So that when that word anointed one is there, the early church fathers are like, well, that's got Jesus written all over it. They, this is speaking of Jesus in Psalm 2. 
And the, the God enthroned in heaven, he laughs, God scoffs, and he installs his king on his holy hill. And then it reads this. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask of me, my anointed one, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possessions. You will break them with the rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Twice John in Revelation says that Jesus will rule the nations with an iron scepter. So who has the nations at their disposal to give as gifts to the Son that he loves? The Father. Not, not, not the devil. Will Jesus believe that voice that I'm that Son, I'm that anointed one? whom I love and I am well pleased. Mark wrote this book. It's the earliest gospel we have. He wrote, he had Roman readers. It was a time when they were being persecuted. And it's interesting that Mark in his gospel He's the one who makes this, that Jesus was in the desert with the wild animals and the angels attended him. He writes this at a time where you and I, if we were there, would be hiding underground. We'd be the underground church. Why? Because we can hear the lions and we can hear the tigers and we can hear the wild beasts in the Colosseum. And we can hear the screams of people being torn apart. And we're wondering, okay, so we've been baptized, we've been called to this Jesus, this Messiah, and now all of a sudden we're finding, does he really love us? And Jesus was in the desert after having all this wonderful experience and where Jesus was, was, was affirmed for all that God had for him and loved him. And he's with the wild beasts. Can you find yourself there? See, we can transition from the ecstasy of a baptismal voice or the feeling of great acceptance and love from God to the pit of despair and doubt in the matter of a second. I know I can. It only takes a family crisis, a major health issue, a financial worry, a death, a rejection from a friend, an insensitive comment, we could go on and on and on and on. And before we know it, we're thinking ourselves worthless, no good, ugly, despicable, nobody rejected by God, not beloved children. Because at the center of the gospel is this, because it goes out of the heart of God. Justification is what happens. Yes, that's part of the whole thing. But I believe more central than justification is your adoption and mine as children of God. You are the beloved of God. You are the brother and sister of Jesus Christ. And I know that's true because Jesus said it. Hear this, and I close. Jesus never stopped being God's son, whom God loved and who he was pleased with, even when he was in the desert. And the wild beasts were around him. So no matter what our desert is this morning, we need to hear these words of Jesus' prayer from John 17 because they're for us. 
I pray for those, Jesus said, who will believe in me through the disciples' message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Then the world will know that you sent me, and then this is the line, and have loved them, have loved us. The Father loves us, even as you have loved me. When we hear those words in the gospel that you're my beloved son and who I am well pleased, it's Jesus is saying, I want them to know that you love them the same way you love me. And I want you to know we struggle every day with believing that. Because that's grace. Absolute grace. This is the word of the Lord in the temptations of Jesus to us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray.